As I said, we're concluding a series on grow, called Grow. It's on Matthew chapter 13. For the last two weeks, we've been looking at Matthew chapter 13 and seeing how this, uh, this, chapter, how this chapter informs the way that we live. How this, this chapter informs our, our own Christian walk. We, we looked at it and we understood that with the first week, that Matthew chapter 13 tells us that our Christianity is not a static walk with God. We looked at how a walk with God, according to this chapter, is a dynamic one. A walk with God is one that changes. A walk with God is something that impacts us and continues to change throughout our lives. But then as we looked at last week, we also looked at how the the growth in this chapter isn't just simply about our own personal growth, but it's about our communal growth. It's about the kingdom of God, how the kingdom of God is a present reality in the world that we live in, and how the kingdom of God is growing And we make the choice of whether or not to be a part of that growth. We make the choice of whether or not to be a part of the thing that's already happening in this world and whether we as a church can incorporate the kingdom of God in the way that we live. Uh, But today we we take a different direction as we continue to look at what the kingdom of God means in our lives. What does it mean to grow in Christ? And to do that, I want to go back to Matthew chapter 13. If you're looking from a pew Bible... Yeah, we're still on page 565, the same page it seems that we've been on every week here, page 565. And if you're following it all, the way we've been going, we're actually going to jump backwards a little bit because of the way that the parable split up. Otherwise, just follow along. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to start with verse 24. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, it says this. It says that he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemies came, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and they went away. And when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No lest in the gathering of the weeds you also uproot the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat and place them in my barn. Of course, as we looked at last week, Jesus takes a break from this parable and he begins to continue to tell other parables about the kingdom of God. But then, luckily for us, once again, the disciples... As we talked about the first week, the disciples often are asking the dumb question, what are you talking about? What does this mean? What is this actually, what what is this really talking about? And sure enough, we find a couple of verses later that the disciples ask him. They wait till the crowd leaves, perhaps for embarrassment's sake, so they don't have to look foolish. The crowds disappear in verse 36, and his disciples come to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field, is in the, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all, who cause, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. 
You know, as I think about this week that we've just gone through yet again, and I compare this sermon to last week's sermon, in some ways, this one seems a little bit more plain. Last week, we were looking at the kingdom of God and how it's a present reality in the world that we live in. And sometimes that sounds a bit improbable. Sometimes it actually sounds impossible because it doesn't seem congruent with the violence and the tragedies and the suffering that we see in the world around us. But then when we come to this parable, and he talks about the weeds, and he talks about the tares, and he says those words, an enemy has done this. Sometimes those words seem chillingly clear, chillingly real. Because once again, as we gather here this Sabbath, we look back on the week that we just had. And once again, we see evidence that there is an enemy at work. Once again, we see evidence that the world is not really how it's supposed to be. That the world is not how it was created to be. That there's still pain, that there's still suffering. And that it's sometimes hard to imagine that the kingdom is actually here. Because we see the weeds more than we see the kingdom sometimes. And so on Thursday night... We see a young man who rents a 20-ton truck and drives into a crowd, indiscriminately taking lives in the process. 84 lives taken. Innocent lives. Men, women, children, and then more injured. And then as we're processing this, and as we're reading through the news, and we're trying to come to grips of what does this mean, and is terrorism something that will ever go away, and we're trying to say, what does this mean for our country? Does this relate to us at all? How does this relate to, to our compassion? Because sometimes you feel compassion fatigue as you try to process all these events. You keep hearing one after another, and how can you keep caring? And even in the midst of trying to understand this tragedy, then Turkey just goes into chaos. And in the coup there, once again, we see lives that are lost because violence erupts. Ninety people die there. Over a thousand injured in that process. And again and again, you hear these things because we live in this hyper-connected world where no matter where something happens, you hear about it, and you have to find yourself gripping reality and trying to understand what does this mean as a follower of God? What does this mean in the world that I live in? And again and again, you hear the words of Jesus, an enemy has done this. It seems super clear. We live in a world where there are weeds. We live in a world where there is wheat. But sometimes it looks like the weeds are the ones that are winning because we see the pain. We see the suffering. Now, there's one part of the text that I want to I focus on briefly because I think it, it relates to this. And that's, that's the very end. And it's the part that makes me most uncomfortable, to be honest. Because at the very end, it mentions that at the end of the day, at the harvest, we're going to see the wheat and we're going to see the weeds separated at that time. And then the weeds go into the fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I have to admit that at some level, this always makes me uncomfortable. But yet at the same time, when we go through a week like this, it almost sounds more fitting because perhaps some of the discomfort that I feel in this idea of punishment, the discomfort that I feel that there's some kind of justice coming, is perhaps that my life has been a bit too protected and I don't recognize the injustices that have happened all around me. And we all have a deep need for justice. We all want to see justice happen. We all want to see that there's going to be some day of reckoning because when we look at the events of last week, we don't know exactly what took place. We don't know exactly how things happened during the final hours when a man is gunned down in front of a convenience store, but we hope that justice will be served. We don't know exactly why some man is reaching for his wallet and he finds himself dead in his own car, but we hope that justice will be served. We don't know why someone thinks that it's the correct solution to gun down other innocent police officers in response to the, the, 
the, the injustices that are happening around them, but we hope that in the process, somehow we find justice. And at some level, one of the things that this, this moment right here tells us is that one day there will be justice, that one day there will be an answer, that one day people will have to stand up for the things that they did. And I imagine at some level, there's a lot of people who gravitate towards that idea of in the end there will be revenge. That in the end there will be something that will happen. People will burn. In fact, if you remember a couple of years ago, five years ago to be exact, there was a book that was published. Uh, for those of you that live under a rock or just simply don't pay attention to all the religious squabblings that take place, it was Rob Bell. He, he published this book called Love Wins. Do you remember this? He published this book called Love Wins, and in it he questioned the, the theology of hell. And what actually does this mean? What actually is the Bible talking about? Is hell actually a real thing? brought up more questions than there were answers. But if you remember, in the aftermath of the book, people came in violently upon him, saying, how dare you question this idea of hell? How dare you question this idea that people are going to burn for this? And I remember reading through different responses of different pastors who were saying, oh, we got to throw this book out of, the, out of the libraries. We can't read this. This is no good. And I remember reading through some of the responses that were basically saying, evangelism dies without hell evangelism dies without hell because otherwise how are people going to be convinced to come to Jesus how are we going to convince people to come to Jesus if there's not this fiery stick called hell that we can wave at them that's just not going to work you're going to kill all of our evangelism so on the one side you have this group of of people who really desperately want to see hell happen and maybe part of the reason is because we sometimes feel wronged. And in the process, we're hoping that if I get wronged at some point, you, if you're the one that wronged me, you're one day going to pay. You're going to pay dearly. You're going to pay where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then on the other hand, you have another group of people who get a little bit squeamish when it comes to hell. Do you remember some of you probably in English class, you had to read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Do you remember this? This is the kind of sermon that gives you nightmares, where he talks about how he holds us over the pit of hell like a loathsome spider or some other kind of insect. Just, I would do it too if there was a spider, I'd want to just drop it right into the fire. But God is standing there like holding us like this, and we think, that doesn't sound very good. That doesn't sound very tasteful. I don't want to have any part in that kind of God, which of course as Adventists, we have a different kind of theology in hell to offer, something that we should probably talk about more often. Because when we look at the idea of how we look at it simply that God is putting an end to sin, that God's not trying to punish people for eternity, not trying to make them suffer. He just simply is trying to end suffering, something we should probably talk about more often than not. But I think sometimes when we're talking about this idea of hell, and we were talking about this idea of universalism, because that's what Rob Bell was accused of being, was he's a universalist, this is what it's all about. Is it possible that God himself has the heart of a universalist. Is it possible that God himself has the heart that he wants to see everyone saved? Even if it's not possible, that's the heart of God. We see it in 2 Peter chapter 3. Because in 2 Peter chapter 3, people are saying, why is it that God hasn't come back yet? And the response is, because he doesn't want anybody to perish. It says that he's a long-suffering and patient God. There's not one person that he wants to perish. 
And there's that side of us that say, well, 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 maybe not most people. Like, God doesn't want most people to perish, right? But there's some people that God might want to perish. Because there's some people that are just really bad. There's some people that are really evil. You don't understand the kind of people that I've seen. You don't understand the kind of people that I've seen in the news. Some people deserve to perish. But then you go to one of my favorite, favorite stories in the Bible, the story of Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? He's going against what is in some ways kind of the, their, their day's equivalent of, of a terrorist group. Because as he goes out to the Ninevites, these are people who are acting like terrorists because people are afraid of them. Because they're cutting off people's tongues, they're decapitating people and stacking them in front of a city. And so everyone's afraid of this group of people. And at first when you're reading through this story, you assume that this is why he's running away from God's calling to go to them. As you're reading through the story, if you're reading through it for the first time, you've never seen this book before, your idea would be, of course I understand where he's coming from. Of course Jonah doesn't want to go there. Of course he'd rather be swallowed by a fish because these people are scary people. But then you come to the end of the book. When you get to Jonah chapter 4, I want to read where that goes. Jonah chapter 4, if you're reading again from the Pew Bible, this is on page 533. In Jonah chapter 4, it says this, verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah was actually upset Jonah actually didn't want to go to Nineveh because he understood that there was a really decent chance if he went to Nineveh that they would be saved. He understood that if he went to, to Nineveh that God would be gracious to them if they just simply repented. And so we see again and again throughout Scripture that God's heart is actually a universalist heart where he wants everyone to make this choice. Even the terrorists among us, he wants them to make this choice for him. He wants them to eradicate the sin from their lives, but it's still their choice. So that's my dealing with, with the hell topic here as we're, as we're looking at the wheat and the weeds. The rest of it seems pretty straightforward and clear because we look at the wheat and we look at the weeds and we look around the world around us and we say, well, of course, there's good people and there's bad people. I understand that, Jesus. What are you trying to say? Right, because if you go through your, your ordinary life, there are times where you see good people around you. There's a time you go out to, to the store and you leave your wallet behind and someone comes chasing after you with your wallet and you say, that's a good person. I'm glad they're here on this planet. Then there's other times where you open up your computer and there you have some offer from a Nigerian prince who just has this great big inheritance that they're going to pass off to you. And you say, this is a bad person. Why do these people waste our time? You have the, the moment where you go to the, the parking lot and there's your car and it's got a nasty scratch on it. But then you look and there's a note. And there's an honest person who took responsibility for it. And they're giving you their insurance information. You say, that's a good person. Then there's the other day you go to your car and someone has keyed your car. It has happened to my car a couple weeks ago. I was so mad. And then you say, this is a bad person. There's good people and there's bad people throughout all around you. There's the weeds. There's the wheat. I had this, uh, this crystal clear moment of that dichotomy. The other week, last week, 4th of July week, uh, some of you know this, a lot of you actually know this, that I lost my dog. And it was this really traumatic moment for me. 
because this was on Thursday that I find this out. In transition, we're moving out here. I didn't have a place for the dog, so we found a dog sitter. I'm not sure if this is well advised or not, but I put her on Craigslist. She said, looking for a dog sitter, and boom, I found this person on Craigslist. And so she's watching my dog. I wouldn't do this with my kids, just so you know. But I do it with my dog, and I think this has to be fairly safe. And then Thursday night of last week, I get this call saying, I lost your dog. And, and this is really bad news for a couple of reasons. One reason is because I'm a really bad dog owner and I forgot to tag her. Right? Like I had tagged her at one point in time. I had her tags that said Sienna, had my name, had my phone number. But then she outgrew the collar. I changed it out and I forgot to put new ones on. So that's bad that she's wandering around downtown Denver without tags. The other reason it's bad is she's also blind, like 100% blind. So I've got this blind, tagless dog wandering through the streets of Denver, and I decide, like, this is it. I'm mourning her loss. That, like, I don't think I'm going to see her again. But then through the good deeds of good Samaritans, she's restored to me. People who have no real motivation to help they help. Total strangers. Someone finds her in a field and they take her to a shelter. Someone's volunteering at the shelter who volunteers at the shelter all the time and they scour through the Craigslist ads looking for lost dogs and they, as they're scouring through, they find my picture of my dog and they make the connection for me. And not just one person, several people did this. And I remember when I get home this night, when I have, actually this is Thursday night that I collected her and I had her back in our house. I had put this picture up on Instagram saying, faith restored in humanity, people are good. The thing is, I hadn't really been keeping up with the news. I hadn't really been understanding what was happening in the world around us that very night. And so later, after I'd put this post up, I started to scroll through, and suddenly, suddenly that post of mine seemed so tone-deaf to the world around us. Because while I'm celebrating that there's some good Samaritans taking care of, of my dog, at the other end, here there are people who are dying, people who are acting out in violence. You see, we look at this parable and it seems so clear on the surface. There's wheat and there's weeds. They coexist. That's the world that's around us. And so at one level, I have this question with, with Jesus when I'm reading through this, thinking, why are you telling us this? This seems kind of intuitive and basic. We already know this. So what's really the point of the parable? Because I have this theory that when we're reading through parables, that parables are almost always, they have this trademark of making us feel uncomfortable. And if they're not making us feel uncomfortable, we are probably reading the parable wrong. I think the point of discomfort for me as I read through this idea of the wheat and the weeds is the fact that Jesus says to leave them and let them coexist because he says if you don't let them coexist in the process, if you try to uproot the weeds, you may uproot the wheat as well. And so you have to ask the question, why would that be? Why is it that if you uproot the, the weeds, you're going to take out the wheat as well? At first when I read this, I assumed it meant that the, the roots are kind of all intermingled. And as they're intermingled, you pull up on the, the weed, you're going to take out everything all at once. But as scholars are reading this, they're saying, no, actually what's happening is people are pulling it too early. The reason you have to wait for the harvest is you have to wait to see the full fruits of what each plant is, meaning that it's indistinguishable which one is wheat and which one are the weeds. And I think this is the point that makes us uncomfortable. This is the point that makes us uncomfortable because we like to have clear lines. 
We like to have clear boundaries. We want to know who the good guys are. We want to know who the bad guys are. We don't want to be left in the dark. And we do this in different ways. Sometimes it's through stereotypes. Sometimes it's through prejudices. And we see that played out in the world. But we also see this happen in the church as well, where we want to know who is in and who is out. Sometimes this happens through artificial constructs. And so we'll say, well, you know, the, the in people, they dress a certain way. The in people, they, they talk a certain way. The in people, they eat and drink a certain way. And these are the people, like, once you see that, you can identify that these are the good people, but the people on the outside are the bad people. But you have to, have to ask the question, is it really that easy to distinguish who is in and who is out? Is it really even our job to be figuring out who is in and who is out? Is there a part that we can play in the present right now to be trying to pull out different people? Because what happens, Jesus says, is that when we try to identify this too early, when we try to take this too fast, in the process, we are actually starting to uproot something else, and we uproot the good along with the evil. See, the message of the wheat and the weeds isn't just simply that there's pain in the world. It isn't just simply that there's evil and suffering in the world. The problem is, or the, the, the point is, that we're all mixed together, and we can't fully distinguish. And it's not even our job to distinguish who's in and who's out. And, and this is kind of hard in some ways. Because I find a lot of times for me, in a, in a kind of sick and twisted way, it's a lot of times for me, the driving force is trying to figure out who's out. And, and the reason why I want to figure out who's out is because once I figure out that there's someone who's, who's different than me, someone who's acting in a way that, ah, I mean, this is kind of questionable, then it makes me feel better about who I am. Remember the story of the, the publican and the tax collector? The story of the publican and the tax collector? Jesus is always doing this again and again throughout the, the, the parables. You see these surprising twists like the Samaritan. The Samaritan is not supposed to be the hero in the story. But as you read through the story of the good Samaritan, boom, he's the hero of the story. Well, same thing happens with the publican and the tax collector in this parable. Jesus talks about the two of them coming into to the temple to pray. And the publican's praying, and as he prays, he looks around him, and he's thanking God that he's not like the sinners out there. Thank God that I'm not like them. Thank God that I wasn't born to live a life like this, and specifically over there at the tax collector. Thank God that's not who I am. While on the other hand, the tax collector is looking more inward. The tax collector is looking at himself, and he's coming to God with a contrite heart. And Jesus clearly says it's the it's the tax collector who walks away justified. Meanwhile, what the publican's trying to do is trying to look at someone else's sins, look at someone else's faults, look at someone else's problems, and in the process, make himself feel like he's sanctified, make himself feel like he's holy, when in fact, it's doing just the opposite. It's so much easier to look and distinguish other people around you rather than to look inside. There is a, there is a moment early in my marriage where Val and I were at a church, and uh, Val goes off to the, to the restroom. Dangerous place in a church, apparently, because there's this old matriarch of the church who is waiting for her in there. <laughs> and as she, uh, she finds herself cornered in the bathroom, where you, I mean, there's nowhere to go. You can't get out the window. There's a door there. And she's standing right there in front of Valerie, blocking her way. And she challenges her 
right there in the bathroom. This week, what I want you to do is I want you to make a list of all the right decisions that you make and a list of all the wrong decisions that you make. And then I want you to come back to me next week and report to me how that went. Now, I get that at some level. There is something healthy when we come together as a Christian community and we say, let's talk about the issues that we have. Let's talk about the things that are wrong in our lives, and I'll confess some things to you. I've been a part of communities where we do that, where I confess some things, they confess some things, and we grow stronger in the process. But it's a lot easier to ask someone else to do all the confessing. It's a lot easier to try and root out their sins than to, dr- to try to deal with our own sins. The parable of the wheat, the parable of the tares, tells us that our focus needs to be more inward than outward when it comes to trying to root out the problems of the world. Our focus needs to be more on Christ, which interestingly enough is the next parable that he talks about. Because as we look at the parable of the wheat and the tares, there's this parable right here. And then right in the middle of that, there's another parable about treasure and pearl. And then right after that, there's also a parable about the fish. Now the fish seems to be almost exactly the same kind of parable where the kingdom of God is like a net that's thrown down and as it's pulled up, we collect good fish and we collect bad fish and at the end of time, we throw up the bad fish and we keep the good fish. But tucked right in the middle of that narrative is this idea of the, the treasure and the pearl. I wanna read that for a second. If you go back to page 565, we're in Matthew chapter 13, We look at verse 44. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Tucked here in this parable where Jesus is talking about how there's good and bad in the world and how we, our job is not to be discriminating. Our job is not to be trying to figure out who's in, who's out. Is this idea of the, of the pearl of great price. This idea of a treasure that's buried in a field. And it's redirecting our focus. It's redirecting our passion. It's redirecting our interest. Apparently this is a, would be a common problem because this is happening before banks. If you have a lot of treasure, you don't have a place to put it in safekeeping. And so as you're going through life and you have, you're amassing treasure, you don't know what to do with it. So the safest thing to do is to bury it in the ground. But then perhaps something bad happens and you die. And the treasure is left there. As I was reading commentaries on this, they were saying, perhaps there's many other treasures buried throughout the world to this day. You could be a treasure hunter. You might be able to find it. But as we, uh, this would be this common situation where someone would die, their treasure would be forgotten about. No one would know. But then perhaps as you're plowing through this field, there you find this treasure. And, and the key focus word for me is that in great joy this person goes to sell everything that they have. Right? We don't think of having a lot of joy about getting rid of everything that we have. We look at a couple chapters later, we get to the, the, par- the story of the rich young ruler. And this is the breaking part for him when he's asking God, like, how do I follow you? And he could have just left it be. If he just was talking to Jesus and just said, what can I do? And Jesus says, keep all the commands. And he says, I've been doing this from, from birth. Jesus is like, good job, good on you. He could have just left it there, but he keeps pushing Jesus. No, what do you mean? What more is there for me to do? Because there's something in his heart saying, this isn't quite all, this isn't quite enough. And Jesus tells him to go and sell everything. But it was too much. It was too much to ask of him. And similarly, when we think about interacting with Jesus and we think about what Jesus is asking us to do, sometimes we feel like perhaps it's too much. 
But the focus of the parable is that they do it in great joy because they found something that's positive. They found something that's, that's worth it. They found something of substance. They found something that's compelling. Too often in my life, I feel like my drive in my pursuit for God and my drive in my work with the church has instead of being focused on, on the positive, has been more focused and driven by the negative. I was reminded of this when I was, uh, when I was packing. I hate packing. But one of the reasons I hate packing is I'm just a nostalgic person. And the worst section for me is when I get to the garage. Because in the garage, there's these stacks of things from childhood. There's the stacks of like the yearbooks and the mementos and the things that your mom said you should save and never throw away. So you kept them locked in this box. You never look at them till you move, but you look at them then. And so I'm trying to be busy packing, but again, I find myself stuck with some nostalgic thing. And I came, you also find embarrassing things. I came across a book of poetry. Now for me, this is really embarrassing because I'm the type of person, I don't get poetry, right? Like I get like, you know, the basic rhyming poetry, the kind you learn as a kid, but once you get to like adult poetry, I don't understand it. It's like a foreign language. I have a hard time telling what is and what isn't poetry. But apparently I had a poetry project as a kid in English class. And there was this one poem that we were supposed to do called A Bitterness Poem. And we were supposed to reach deep inside our souls and find something that we were bitter about and then write a poem on it. I was a happy kid. I didn't have much going on in my life. But as I dug around, this is what I found. The title, this is so embarrassing to read, but we're community, right? The title of the, of the poem is Pastor. And it goes like this. You claim to be a shepherd, guiding others to Christ, but I see through your cheap, ugly lies. Teenage angst at its best. You claim you want what is best for the church, yet you are trying to tear it down. You are supposed to show me how to love, but all I feel is hate. Why must you do this to me? You are throwing me into a tunnel of depression. Seems a bit much, but it keeps going. A tunnel of depression that seems to lead straight towards hell. Your foul, hypocritical mouth is a repulsive. Your tongue is like a whip, lashing stinging scars on my body. I will never forget what you have done, but pray on judgment day, God will forget. Stunning, right? As you read through this, you think, man, what, is, what did this guy do to you? Like, torture you? It wasn't really that big of a deal. But, but as I was reading through that poem, it reminded me of how early on, and even to this day, so much of the things that I want to see change in the church, so much about the way that I engage with the church, can often be driven by the negative. It can often be driven from an unhealthy place. I remember when I was first becoming a pastor, the, one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to make sermons better. Sermons are so boring. Like, that's how I was growing up, thinking sermons are just so boring. And then the reality check, you get up here and you realize, Man, it's really hard to do an interesting sermon as you see heads nodding off. It changes your perspective a little bit. But everything was about fixing the problems that I saw, trying to make things better because this is bad, this is bad, this is negative. When in fact, our focus was meant to be on the positive. Our focus was meant to be on something that would compel us to better living. Our focus was meant to be on the life of Jesus himself.
Our focus was to be on the cross and what that means. Our focus was to be on that kind of unconditional love that invites us into community with him for eternity. That should be the thing that drives us as a church. That should be the kind of thing that drives us as individuals. That should be the kind of thing that makes the kingdom of God come alive, become present, and become a real thing in the world around us. When we find a cause that's bigger than ourselves, when we find a cause that's worth living for. A few years ago, there was, a, there was a call that went out for volunteers for this project called Mars One. Do you remember this? Mars One was this project, I shouldn't say was, apparently it's still up and running, but the plan is to, to launch a community in Mars. And they were asking for volunteers who'd be willing to be basically astronauts who would come and they would be part of this community that would go out and they would be planted and they would begin this thing of life on Mars. And they were going to take all these applicants and they would narrow it down and so they would have four people left who in the year, I think 2024, they would send them out. And then after that, after a couple more years, they would send out four more astronauts and they were to build a community there. And of course, the, the catch was, that's a one-way ticket. The catch was that there was no technology to bring them back. The plan was if you, if you enroll in this, if you enlist in this as a volunteer, you're enlisting to do this for the rest of your life. This is it. This is the end of your life. You will die on Mars. And, you, and I remember reading that article for the first time thinking, like, who in the world would do this? Who would sign up for a mission like this? And it turns out a lot of people. Some reports said 200,000 people were sending in applicants. They came down to some 2,000 real applicants who were real serious about trying out for this. There's been accusations that perhaps the whole thing's a fraud, but nonetheless, as you look at these 2,000 applicants and you read through their resumes and you read why they're doing this, these aren't people who are facing the end of their life. These aren't people who don't have a good career, who don't have something worth living here on earth. But again, and again, as you read through, you see this, this pattern where people are saying, I want to live for something bigger than myself. It's a compelling mission because I think it's better for humanity if we do it. And the driving thing for them was the positive aspect of what they could contribute, the positive aspect of the mission and how big the mission was. And I think about how that relates to us as a church. I think about how that relates to me and my commitment to the, to the church, me and my commitment to God, and whether or not I found something that's worth living for. Whether or not that I, I, I found something that's, that's bigger than myself. Whether or not I've given up on comparing myself to people around me, given up looking for the negatives in the world around me, but instead finding my focus on Jesus. Finding my focus on the pearl of great price. Finding my focus on this treasure that's buried in the, in the dirt and willing to give everything for that. 